It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Welcome to Lighthouse Faith Podcast, where we are moving forward in truth and love. I'm Lauren Green, Chief Religion Correspondent for Fox News Channel and author of the book, Lighthouse Faith. Well, this time of year, we are thankful for what we have been given. Um, the holidays kick off, you know, on Thanksgiving and throughout the New Year's uh, until through the New Year. Uh, there are, what, parties and dinners and galas and galore and gift giving. But it's also a time. As Charles Dickens says in his classic Christmas carol, where want is more keenly felt. And and people of faith are especially called to remember those who have so little, um, particularly the homeless. Homelessness is a scourge in a culture that has so much wealth. You know, there are thousands of homeless people just in New York City and there is a different story as to why they are homeless. You know, for every one of them, there's a different story. It's not about the why that we need to be concerned with, though. But, you know, we're going to talk about that, too. It is about the how we can do just a little bit to help make a difference in the lives of those who have no place to call home. There are also um, a lot of myths about homelessness and that people are lazy, they're, they're into drugs, mental illness, whatever. Josiah Haken knows all the myths and can tell you even more. Uh, he is the Vice President of Outreach Operations with the New York City um, City Relief, which is a nonprofit organization that connects the homeless to resources that can change their lives. And his book, Neighbors with No Doors, explains really the truth about homelessness and how we can all do something pretty simple to help them out. Welcome, Josiah. Thanks for having me. Um, so tell me again, like, what does City Relief actually do? So City Relief is a private a faith-based nonprofit organization that goes into the streets of New York City and New Jersey. Uh, We set up pop-up outreach events where folks who are experiencing homelessness or food insecurity or just need a friend can come by and get a free meal, get a pair of socks or some toiletries. Um, But most importantly, they can connect with a community of, of people who will care about them, listen to their story, and ultimately connect them to resources. So we partner with hundreds of other nonprofits in the area, and we try to create a uh, a referral or a linkage system so that people who are stuck in homelessness can hopefully get unstuck. I suppose, you know, having sort of these pop-up trucks really gets you into the trenches with homeless people so they don't have to go to some monolith, you know, corporate office downtown someplace. Exactly. So the original vision when our organization was founded in 1989 was just that. There's a lot of folks in the street who don't know where to go or they go at the wrong time or they ask for the wrong person or they don't even know what to ask for. Mm-hmm. So by going to where they are meeting them on the street with a pop-up event, um, we can actually help them move forward by hopefully paving the way for them so that they can get the help they need. So so your book, um, Neighbors with No Doors, which is kind of interesting. It's like, I'm not homeless. It's just I have a neighbor who doesn't actually have doors where he hangs out. Um, 
But what are some of the myths about why people are homeless? Yeah, I would say the most, I've identified four that I would say are the most common. Um, the one is that homeless people are lazy. Why don't they just get a job? Uh, you know, right? We've all either thought that or heard that. I know I did before I started working I've in the street. I've probably said it, maybe. Um, yes. you know, <laughs> maybe not, if you're going to be honest about it, at some point in your life, you're, you're going to say, why can't they just, you know, get a job and get off the street? You're not the only one. It's a very common thought process. But in, I, I try to identify that it's a little more nuanced than that. Um, the other one is that they they're dangerous or scary. Um, this is very common as well. This is what leads people to, when they see someone on the street, to to cross the street to the other side of the road and try to avoid them. And we also, and we obviously have seen the news stories of uh, individuals who have acted dangerously. Mm-hmm. But then that begs the question: Are all people who experience homeless dangerous? So, and I would argue that that they're not. Uh, the third is that they're all mentally ill. Like this is a, a very common assumption that all homeless people are dealing with mental illness. And if we could just get them treatment, we would end homelessness, which again is a very, very broad generalization that I think is actually a myth. Mm. Um, and then the fourth one is that they're addicted. Uh, we just get them into treatment, get them off drugs and alcohol, and they will be just fine. And again, those four myths or lies, as I talk about in my book, are so pervasive that the problem that they create when we have this pervasive idea of what leads to someone being homeless is it then like excludes me and excludes Mm -hmm. other people from being part of the solution because we can ultimately blame the homeless person for their homelessness, which then means that I don't really have to do anything about it because they brought this on themselves. Wow, you know, that's so true. I remember my husband and I were walking down Broadway and, you know, he wanted to give like five bucks or something to kind of the resident homeless guy on the street who I've seen for years um, and never have talked to probably. But that was the one encounter that we had with him. And he kind of almost got a little gruff and says, "Get, yeah, I don't need that, you know. And so that gives the impression that a person on the street wants to be on the street. What, what has been your experience with that? Yeah, my experience is that that response, that even for the the individual who responds aggressively or or you know kind of pushes people away, even when you're trying to do a nice thing, what I've observed is that that is a defense mechanism that a lot of folks who are living in survival mode have developed over the years. Um, I've also observed that a lot of times that can even be fixed with a good night's sleep. If someone were to sleep through the night with their feet up in a comfortable bed with a private bathroom, it's amazing the power of a good night's sleep. So what I try to think about with with those individuals that I've met who have been rude to me or I've tried to help and then they curse me out or whatever is I, I try to remember like, oh... I wonder what m- my experience would be with like someone who's not a morning person who I'm waking <laughs> up at four, you know, like someone like, you know, I know people who are just in the morning, you get them at the wrong time and they are rude. Um, I'm not going to call up my wife by name, but I'm going to say, <laughs> hypothetically, I might be married to someone who in the morning, you're not going to get the most receptive response. I'm, so, I'm worried to one of those two. <laughs> yeah. So so it happens. So my, my overall point, though, I guess, is that um, homelessness in general is sort of like an iceberg right? The, the, mm-hmm. We only see the tip. Uh, and that's what we kind of focus on. And the tip of homelessness is is street homelessness. It's panhandlers. It's people who on the subway are asking for money. Whereas the bulk of the iceberg is uh, families and working parents and 
children. Um, and so there, there is so much complexity and depth and, and issue and struggle that our homeless neighbors are experiencing that even goes beyond uh, what we experience in the street. I want to get to some of some of the stories you've heard you talk about in your book. But one of the things that really, really just stuck out to me was this idea of, of kindness mm-hmm. kits, uh, kindness kits. Mm-hmm. That's you know, we can all do, um, but what are they? So kindness kits, I have to give the, the credit to my one of my childhood friends, uh, uh, his daughter, who's about seven or eight years old. He reached out to me uh, via social media, and he's like, hey, Josiah, my daughter just has a heart for people in the street. I don't know why. I don't know where it came from. And this <laughs> is not uncommon. I think, I mean, I have two kids under, under 10, and what I've observed in children is that they often will notice things that as adults we've sort of become accustomed to or we've mm-hmm. sort of accepted. And homelessness is one of those things. I think children, if you want to see how unnatural homelessness is, just talk to a child. Mm. Um, and my friend's daughter actually said, what can I do? I want to help these people. What can I do? So I suggested that they put together kits of toiletries, which are travel-sized toiletries, deodorant, toothbrush, toothpaste, pair of socks, uh, maybe a gift card to a coffee shop, um, but just something that that will allow someone to feel human, feel the dignity of of a little bit of cleanliness, feel the the mm-hmm. dignity of of being seen and, and engaged with with compassion. Um, and so I suggested this, and they actually coined the phrase "kindness kits," uh, and they started assembling. Apparently, his daughter insisted that they go right to the local you know uh, store that they could buy these supplies. And they Target, Costco, Costco, Walmart, whatever you have you. Um, And they assembled, they bought all these supplies and assembled them and they've been distributing them ever since. And so it's just one area where I'm like, if an eight year old girl can do this, anybody can. Wow. That is really amazing. Um, And then in terms of the city, because I remember my husband saying, and it was seeing a homeless person on the street, you think, cannot we figure out some way to help these people so they're not sleeping on the street? What can corporately a city do? I mean, there's shelters. Yes. Um, the problem that you run into is that w- with a lot of folks, especially, again, going back to that sort of the tip of the iceberg, right, the, the street homeless individuals, is that a lot of them have been to shelters. Shelters are not designed for long-term sustainability. They're, they're designed intrinsically as short-term emergency solutions, um, which are not actually solutions, uh, maybe reprieves. Right, Um, right. And so when you have a system that's designed around sheltering people temporarily without building up the infrastructure to help people get housing for the long haul, you end up with sort of this revolving door where people are going in and shelters and out of shelters. And in, in New York City, it makes it particularly challenging because the shelter system candidly has a bad reputation among the homeless population at at large. I've talked to hundreds and hundreds of people uh, who have expressed fear and trauma. And uh, there's a a lot of folks I've talked to who they don't choose to be homeless. They choose to sleep outside because they're choosing not to sleep in a shelter because they believe their only options are shelter, or the subway or shelter in the street. And they feel safer in a lot of cases in the street or in the subway. And if I'm going to be reflective about what my own preference would be, I can tell you that that might be a choice I'd make too. Um, um, one of the things that people are kind of drawing a comparison to is and you've got a lot of immigrant buses that are coming up to New York City and the city is opening up shelters or they're opening up hotel spaces for them. Why can't they do that for the homeless? 
Uh, you know what? The fact is we did. We actually did open up hotels for the homeless population during COVID. Uh, there were lots of hotels that, mm -hmm. that they moved a lot of folks from congregate settings into uh, into hotel rooms. And I can tell you again from my experience of working and doing outreach throughout that entire period is that the numbers of people in the street, I believe, went down while they had folks in the hotels because people would accept, more people would accept a, a hotel room than a congregate setting. So the minute they moved everyone back into congregate shelters, I believe there was a large percentage of, now I don't have data on this, but anecdotally I would say there was a percentage of people who opted to go back again, that binary choice. If, I'm, mm -hmm. if it's a hotel room or the street, I choose the hotel room. If it's a congregate shelter, or the street. I'm going to choose the street, and so I've seen. We've seen numbers. I think increase over the last year, year and a half, um, in particular because there are folks who were in the system, who were staying in a hotel, who are no longer uh, provided that option. So to answer your question, we ha we can, we have, and at this point, it's a choice. We're choosing not to. Um at the introduction, I talked about how thousands of people are in New York are homeless, but what are the actual numbers in New York City? So as of November 15th, there was 63,000 people sleeping in a New York City shelter, according to the Department of Homeless Services website. Um, I can tell you that's, you know, basically the size of, uh, you know, the, there's like 16 U.S. capitals that have fewer people than the New York City shelter system. So wow. we're talking about a huge percentage of people who are in shelters already. But then there's the people who are in the street and the subways. And there is a count that's done every year called the point in time count or the hope count. Um, and honestly, it's it's a it's it's a lesson in futility. Uh, trying to count people with that with that system is just any most advocates would tell you it's it's, it's notoriously bad for counting. So the number of people who are in the street, we just don't know exactly. I'd say the number ranges anywhere from 3,000 to 5,000, depending uh, of folks in the street. And then the other number that you just can't count are the people who are homeless, who are crashing with a friend, who are, uh, you know, who are on someone's couch. Um, I've had people stay at my house temporarily for periods of time when they were in between things or had a bad, lost their job or, or whatever, or, or broke up with a, with a loved one. Um, mm. So relationship breakup can lead people to needing a, a temporary place. So um, the numbers are, I would argue, are, are, are much higher than we even know. Um, and what, based on what I've seen with the, uh, the surge in the asylum seekers and uh, the surge in uh, the people, again, who are choosing the street over the shelter system, um, I would say we're talking about numbers that we, we've never seen before, historic numbers right now. Before we get to, you know, talking about some of the individual stories, which I think are fascinating, interesting, and really kind of open up the new understanding of homelessness, what can people do in general you know, this holiday season to kind of relieve some of the, you know, plight of homelessness. Yeah, I mean, I the best thing that people can do to start, I would say, is, is to start uh, seeing people as people rather than a problem. Um, I, I think if we are able to empathize and, and look at the people in the street uh, and, and see them as human beings 
Um, like I mentioned earlier, children don't have this problem. They see homeless people and they see them as human beings and they wonder what on earth. So I think even acknowledging the people themselves is a good first step. I think um, building up the the courage to, to smile instead of frown at someone who's panhandling or someone who's on the sidewalk, um, I think can go a long way. I, I've, I've seen tourist brochures for New York City that actually recommend don't make eye contact with homeless people because <laughs> they're going to ask you for money. And I always tease people. I'm like, well, what's the worst thing about someone asking you for money? You can say no. Like, it's not, it's not, that's because someone says, hey, can I get a dollar? Doesn't mean you have to just empty your 401k into their Venmo account. Like, that's just, it's not necessary. You can say, no, thanks. I'm not going to help you today with that. But with without being a jerk, right? You can mm-hmm. still be kind. Um, that costs nothing, right? So I would say engaging with kindness. I would say also just being like in, engaging with organizations that are already serving this community. I mean, I know City Relief uh, is the organization I have the pleasure of leading. And, uh, and we need all the help we can get through volunteers through giving, through other ways. So like there's ways for people to get involved. I, I did a, a, a workshop for some folks at the UN this last week, and uh, one of the women was uh, an Asian woman who said she was afraid of engaging because of all of the hostility and the Asian hate that has been so common and reported about over the last year. And I, and I, I assured her, I said, look, I, I, that's a valid thing. Like that's your personal comfort level, but that doesn't mean you, you can't do anything. Like just because you don't feel comfortable engaging someone yourself doesn't mean you can't find a way to to serve this community on the back end. And so I would just encourage anyone to think about how can I get creative? So even on Thanksgiving, right, like people getting together, like maybe you can assemble kindness kits, have someone bring, you know, 50 travel-sized deodorants and have someone bring 50 travel-sized toothbrushes and make an assembly ah. line. And instead of having like just a dinner table with all this food, like actually create an assembly line where you can assemble kits and then either distribute them yourself, like actually walk around and give them away or donate them to an organization like Relief or, or another one that, that you feel that you, you're fond of and you know that does great work. So um, I would say there's lots of ways. Um, another simple thing that people can do is even just getting gift cards. I know a lot of, I used to work at Starbucks. I was a, <laughs> I, I, think, I, I think I've mentioned like, you know, most social workers or most people work in human services at one point like like we're a barista. It's just like it's like the, it's just the, I think it's a rule that you can't go into human services without first working in a in a coffee shop. So I remember people buy lots of gift cards around the holidays. Yeah, lots of gift cards. Um, you know for your kids' teachers and for your colleagues. And and I would just say, why not consider getting a few extra uh, that are maybe smaller dollar amount, amounts, like you don't have to be a lot, but think people forget that a gift card actually can function as rent for like an hour or an hour and a half because I don't and know. And getting out of the cold. It's so cold, right? Yes. So like even being able to be a paying customer uh, is a big deal for someone who doesn't have yeah. that option. So I would say even just get a few extra gift cards and be ready to distribute them. And um, I would also just encourage people if you are going to give every, anything away or, or engage, just always try to make it a relational thing. You don't have to go, like don't shoot too far. You don't need to make yourself uncomfortable like I shared. Um, but you can learn someone's name and you can engage them on a human level. Just I tell people, treat this person like you would treat a stranger at the grocery store, right? Like you bump into someone in the frozen food section, you say hello, you smile. Like it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't have to be rocket science. Right. Um, but there's so many ways that folks can really dig in. And to be honest with you, I, I just feel like we can all collectively make a huge difference by doing small things. Yeah. Um, we're going to take a break right now on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. We're going to talk about some of those stories, which are just really, I say, fascinating because it just kind of is like, oh, that person's just like me. Um, anyway, we're going to take a break and we'll be right back. 
Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. We're now back with uh, Josiah Haken. Uh, he is the uh, uh, outreach person for City Relief. And you I was reading your book, which is Neighbors with No Doors. Is that what it's called? Yes, Neighbors with No Doors. And the first story struck me because it was a woman who had been married um, to a Baptist minister. Detta. Detra. Detra. Mm-hmm. Detra. I, I didn't have my glasses on. It's all good. <laughs> Detra. And um, boy, her story. Tell her story. Why that's so fascinating. Married for a number of decades, actually. Yeah. So Dietra is is one of my heroes. I'm actually going to be meeting her for lunch after this because uh, she's just she's a good she's a friend. Um, so Dietra was in uh, Arkansas uh, and she was married for 35 years, a preacher's wife. She was also a pastor's daughter. Um, but she the way she would describe it is she got into a marriage that uh, she felt stuck in. Uh, she said she knew she wanted out within a month uh, of being married, but she went to her parents and her parents said, we'll take him back, but we won't take you uh, because rough. of the culture uh, that she was in, in terms of how they viewed marriage and uh, the religious Brian. sort of perspectives that they had. Um, which, is really, which is not biblical, by the oh, way. I mean, but people. I can, mean, the word duh comes to mind. But yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. I would certainly with certainly not biblical. Uh, but there's, you know, but people sometimes grab hold of things like a life raft and mm-hmm. focus, focus on the wrong things. Miss the whole love your neighbor thing. And right, right, focus right. Focus on others. Um, so Dietra was uh, in this marriage 35 years. Um, she was. Uh, started to get therapy and started to realize, you know, that she was in a very toxic situation. Long story short, um, she ended up basically telling her husband to pull the car over on the side of the road. You uh, know it's bad when you pull the car over yes, the side of the road in the yes. interstate and you just get out. And yes. I don't care what happens next. Exactly. Um, so she did just that. Got out. A, 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 a passerby picked her up. And she came to New York City because she had a son who was working here. Now, like a lot of folks can re- can relate to, uh, her son's job transferred. Um, and so she was could have moved with him. She could have gone with mm-hmm. him. But it would have involved going back into a world that she was actively trying to stay out of. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she wanted to build a life here in New York City. But she w- wasn't making enough money. She was working as a, as a barista. Again, barista at Starbucks. Um, so she's got a job. So she's working her tail off. So she's... Uh, uh, working, she was the opener, so she was getting up at 4 a.m., opening the coffee shop and working till you know 12, what one, two every day, and she was busting it. And she, but she wasn't making enough. And I think that's, that's something a lot of times people don't realize is that just because you're working doesn't mean you're making a living wage. Yeah. Um, and so work doesn't always translate to housing. And so for her, I actually had um, a friend who was. Uh, a, the chair of a board of a, of a nonprofit in, in New York City, and he reached out to me and said, "Hey, I have this. this I know this woman. She's in trouble. She's going to be homeless probably here in a couple of weeks if if we don't intervene or if someone doesn't help her. But because her situation was so unique, she wasn't able to get access to a placement or a shelter situation that would because she had a job and she, she wasn't just totally destitute. Exactly. Um, so she, I met with her. Um, quickly realized that." You know, we we need to do something. We couldn't just wait. And so, 
I made a few phone calls and we were able to get her into a, uh, a work shelter program that allowed her to leave uh, early in the morning. I basically pulled, uh, you know, some connections and was like, <laughs> can we make an exception for her right. so that she can leave it? three in the morning, four in the morning, and she can go to bed maybe a little earlier. Because that's the thing about shelters. A lot of times they have curfews and they have right. rules about when you can come in and when you can go out. And so if you don't fit that sort of structure or flow, uh, a, sh a shelter may not even be an option for you. One of the things I, uh, I want to interject, because yeah. I worked at a, a shelter in a, a church that I b belonged to, and they had 10 beds. They contracted with the city, but the shelter only opened like at 6 o'clock or 7 o'clock in the evening. Um, they had a separate bedroom for the, the volunteer who was staying overnight, so you had you could lock the door and everything. But there was 10 beds, and in the morning they could take showers, but they had to be out. Yes. And it was very reg regimented, um, and it was great for 10 men, you know, who had a, a warm place to stay uh, at night. And again, they didn't want to stay in those shelters because yeah. they felt it was dangerous. Yeah, and that's, again, it's the structure. It's the rigidity. Yeah. Like, I understand. Like, again, I, you're trying to help hundreds and hundreds of people. You have to build some kind of system uh, to accommodate the multitudes, right? But when you accommodate the multitudes, sometimes you miss the individual. Yeah. And so what Dietra experienced was that she she didn't fit. Um, and so, but we were able to to try to help her uh, get connected and we stayed in touch with her. Um, like I said, I'm still, still friends with her, but she, what makes her very unique also mm -hmm. is that she is a incredibly gifted singer. Uh, she uh, is has done performances around the city. She her story was featured on Humans of New York mm. um, recently, and now Dietra has gone from homeless to homeowner uh, <laughs> in about in about less you know since whatever six or seven years. Um, so she really is uh, a success story of yes. someone who was able to claw her way out. Um, but what I would encourage listeners to consider, though, is while I try to tell stories about the exceptions in some cases or people who don't really fit, I also want people to remember that, um, you know, having having a picture of one person saying, oh, see, she made it. Anybody can. Right. And that's not true. I mean, because Dietra is a very unique individual with unique relationships, unique skills, right. unique backgrounds. Right. So she has a lot of things going for her that a lot of folks that I've served don't. Well, your first story uh, in the book about Malik, mm -hmm. and this is another story like, okay, he has an alcohol problem. Mm -hmm. But then his background becomes, oh, I see. That's why he has a, an alcohol mm -hmm. problem. Explain Malik's story because you have to have a certain amount of compassion to sit down with somebody to hear that part of the story. Otherwise, you just see this guy walking around with a brown paper yeah. bag and a couple of beer cans. You yeah. go, that's his problem. I can move on now. Yeah. So that was Malik's story to this day is, again, I've met with thousands of people, been doing this 12 years, uh, and his story still sticks out to me as one of the, one of the first that really just broke my heart um, because I was trying to get him into detox. That was when I first started chatting with him. And he he came up to me and was like, "Hey, can you guys help me get into detox? Get me get into rehab? I need to stop drinking. I've been drinking too much." Um, and I so we were working on doing that and trying to get him help. But as we were working on it, I asked him like, "When did he start drinking?" Uh, and he told me he started drinking when he was 13 years old. Um, and I asked, "Well, what?" What happened when you were 13? And um, and he expressed that he was staying with his mom. Um, at and She was bouncing around from place to place, but she had a boyfriend who was living with them, and the boyfriend was abusive. Um, mm -hmm. And so the boyfriend would offer him 
alcohol periodically when he was younger. That's when he started drinking a little bit. But the bigger issue is that the boyfriend started beating him up. Um, and he was just not in a position to, to fight back until he got a little older. Um, and then he started hitting back. That's what happened. You know, he became a teenager and got a little bigger. Uh, and the boyfriend basically went to his mom and said, okay, you need to choose me or your son. And because of the relationship trauma that she experienced, she chose the boyfriend. the boyfriend. So the son ended up on the street. So Malik ended up on the street. And um, and then he just kept drinking to cope and to self-medicate, which, again, I would point out to people that there are lots of folks uh, probably listening even. Again, not no judgment, but there are lots of folks who are able to maintain an alcohol addiction and stay housed. Yes. So the issue of housing is not really a matter of alcohol because right. it's, the, and it's the same thing with mental illness. There's a lot of folks who are mentally ill who manage to stay housed. So it can't be clearly just a matter of mental illness. So that's when I talk about these stories, like Malik's story, like Malik was, was set up to fail and mm. he found cope. He found a way to cope when he was younger in alcohol. But as the years dragged on, that coping mechanism became destructive. And that's what we see a lot of times, um, which is why I, in the book, I try, I try to wrap it up as sort of a spoiler alert, but I try to wrap it up by saying that homelessness is the ocean where all rivers and streams of injustice pool when they're yeah. left unchecked or undeterred. Like there's so many different avenues, so so many different tributaries yes, <laughs> going exactly. into that ocean. One of the things you, know, you talk about, I, I, I see as dysfunctional families yeah. in the abuse um, divorce, um, anger issues, how much, because one of the things I learned, you know, working as a volunteer in a homeless shelter was that a lot of people did have family members. It's not like they were alone in the world. Yeah. But dysfunctional families can cause a lot of that. Yes. Yes, it can. And I, and again, I feel like that's something we can all kind of relate to. <laughs> I mean, like we don't have to go too far in our own family trees to find people who were like, you know what, if it was choice between living at their place or living outside, I think I would choose to live outside. <laughs> and some people who are going to be gathered around the Thanksgiving table trying to figure out how am I going to survive two hours with these people, they can probably relate. Um, so it's, it's your, but your point is completely valid. Like so many families um, are, are just broken. Uh, are, are, people are struggling to, to deal with the trauma that they've experienced. I mean, there's a lot of, um, one of the Another leading cause of homelessness is domestic violence. Uh, there's a lot of folks who are fleeing uh, unsafe environments, um, and they don't have a place to flee to, uh, and so they mm -hmm. end up in the street. So the idea of uh, creating healthy uh, and, and substantive and safe family environments is so critical. Um, one of the most devastating things that I've uh, thought about a lot lately is that a lot of folks who are in the shelter system in New York City actually were in the shelter as children. So they mm. just, they never were able to make it out. And so there's this dynamic where there's this cyclical nature that family trauma and, uh, you know, can create when it comes to like sort of the, the sins of the father, right? Um, you know, it's it's just a reality where we are all processing and forced to deal with the trauma that we've experienced from our family members. And unfortunately for homeless folks, uh, they often lack the alternative networks of safety. Right. Uh, the extended family. The extended the... family or 
you know, yeah. you know, we don't have as many cousins, aunts, uncles, anything yeah. like that, you know. And they've burned bridges. I mean, that's mm. the other thing that I, I try to be, I try to look at this through the lens of as, of empathy, right? I, one of mm -hmm. my favorite quotes is from Father Gregory Boyle, uh, who says that we should, uh, you know, not stand in judgment at what the poor have to have to carry, but stand in awe at how they carry it. Um, mm. And so I try to think of it that way. And I know that there are family members out there who have who love their their cousin, their son, their their relative who's homeless. But that homeless person, the relationship is fractured because of trauma, and that person has stolen from them. That person has hurt them. And in those cases, sometimes that division is is legitimate, is a legitimate, healthy boundary that families have. And so I just want to encourage other family members, like, like I'm not trying to make families feel bad for not taking in mm -hmm. their loved one, because the truth is I've spoken to many family members uh, of guests that we've served at City Relief. And um, what I found is that many of them want nothing but good things for their family member, but it's just not healthy and it's not safe. Yeah. Um, and so I would just say that there are, again, going back to that, there are lots of ways of getting involved. And that's one thing where City Relief, I have found, has been able to leverage our capacity as an organization to serve people who haven't burned the bridge with us yet. We're sort of like the last stop, right? So if they've burned bridges with other one, other people, hopefully we can be bridge builders and we can start helping them kind of restructure that bridge that maybe they tore down years ago. You know, one of the, th and you told a story about um, a musician that became homeless because he lost his ability to be a musician. Yeah. You know, and this is this is the devolution. This is the evolution yeah. really of how something starts out fine and then one little tick happens and then it just starts the avalanche downwards. And it is an avalanche. I mean, that's the that's the other thing I think people need to remember. Like for this gentleman, his name's Wayne. He's a, a very again, a very good friend who I've made over the years. Um, but he was in a in a tough marriage, as again many people can relate to. And the he ended up getting into an argument with his wife and it escalated and it didn't end well and he was forced to leave. Police were called, he had to leave. Um, but then he was a musician and he had nerve damage in his hand. And so he wasn't able to generate the revenue that he was generating beforehand. And he had now lost the relationship that and the apartment that he was helping. And his anger to. issues really came from not being able to play. It, yeah, I mean, that, well, that's the thing is it, we have all this like trauma, right, that, that we experience and we're all coping with different things. So, yeah, I mean, the streams colliding and sort of the luck, you know, disintegrating. Uh, and the job issue, though, because that's another thing. I mean, I know Dietra was one of the things you talk about. You know, she, she had a job. It just mm -hmm. wasn't covering the bases. But you talk about two gentlemen who actually pulled the resources to um, to to find a place to live and then COVID hit. Yeah, which is these two guys, these two guys were, were were working at a restaurant and they were able to contribute a hundred dollars a week each um, towards a place and they pulled that hundred dollars to make two hundred dollars a week and they found a room for two hundred dollars a week um, and they were living sustainably and setting some money aside and, and whatnot but yeah COVID hit the restaurant closed uh, and they both were out of, out of work and because they both lost their jobs they both lost their connection now they both lost their apartment their room um, and so and with jobs it's also I think sometimes people forget like when you fill out a job application the first box is usually your name the second box is address address so then there's the issue of 
uh, having the resources for the for the job itself. So, for example, you need a social security card. You need uh, usually a state ID of some kind. You need uh, clothing or uniform that is usually necessary. Um, you, I met a guy in the street who needed steel-tipped boots, and he needed a hard hat to be able to get to work on, on a construction site, um, and he couldn't afford either. So he got offered a job, but he couldn't afford the resources that would be required for him to show up for the job. Wow. And then there's the issue of transportation, right? Like, I mean, 275 isn't a whole lot of money for a subway ride, but if you don't have any money, like there aren't a lot of resources that will say, oh, here's a, you know, here's a swipe or here's whatever you can do so you can get to the job application, the job interview or, or whatever it is. So transportation is also a factor. If you're in the Bronx and you're trying to get to a uh, a job opportunity in Brooklyn uh, or in Lower Manhattan, like you're you're not walking, uh, and if you are, you're not getting there on time. These are simple things that that require really just a simple solution. Like churches could get together mm-hmm. and provide, you know, metro cards yeah. or um, a fund to supply people with, you know, the proper clothing to show up to a work, like steel yeah. tip boots and a hard hat, mm-hmm. or just providing an address for people to put into an application. Absolutely. Yeah, these are all, and honestly, you just kind of summed up what City Relief does, right? Like this, so what we try to do is we try to identify the gaps uh, and then we try to fill the gaps. So we're not providing jobs that are going to be, you know, it's not like I have a a building full of apartments. I can just give out keys to people. Um, I don't have all these jobs where I can say, oh, just show up here and you'll be making $23 an hour. Right, like, right. I, I can't do that. But what I can do is I can do exactly what you just said, is we can pull our resources from donors and from other places and say, how can we help this person get over the barrier that is keeping them stuck? And that's, and again, because you're right, it is simple. Oftentimes it is simple. It's just not easy. And yeah. you have to have an established connection point with those individuals in order to help them overcome those barriers. Well, um, anybody listening, if you want to help the homeless um, and you want to help Josiah Haken actually and City Relief do what you know these simple solutions will do for the homeless, please, how can people um, donate to you? Yeah, I would love for them to go to our website, cityrelief.org. Um, and it's really simple. You can give right there online. Um, you can also check us out on Instagram at City Relief, uh, TikTok. Um, we're we are trying to be as accessible. I kind of joke that City Relief is one of the best kept secrets in New York, uh, <laughs> so which is good. And I appreciate the opportunity to kind of tell the story here um, because we understand that City Relief is is, is one piece of the uh, of the puzzle, uh, but it's a it's a significant piece that you know we've served. 15% more people in 2022 than we served in 2021. Wow. Um, and our revenue has actually gone down by about 15% because of economic issues and a lot of other factors. So uh, just just know if you're listening, uh, there is no gift that's too small. Yeah. Because uh, again, 275 $2.75, like we, that's a metro, that's a one-way retro card. That's a one-way ride that we can provide someone who wouldn't otherwise, who might actually jump the turnstile, end up getting a ticket. And then, and then they the, get involved in the, the police um, yes. and the criminal justice system, and that's another issue So, so no, gi- no gift is too small because wow. maybe 275 is the difference between someone making it to a job or making it to an appointment uh, as opposed to getting locked up or getting, uh, you wow. know. All right, people, if you belong to a church, mosque, synagogue, whatever, get your get your house of worship involved. Yes. And either make a huge donation to City Relief or provide the 
an address for a homeless yeah. person to put down on an address, um, yeah. uh, clothing drives, um, food drives, kindness kit drives. Mm-hmm. It all can happen. Yeah, and the last thing I would offer is, you know, we want to be a resource for people. So if there's anybody out there listening in the faith community or or elsewhere who wants us to help their community put this stuff together, we want to be an, uh, a, a resource for you. So not even just donations, but even education and empowering. Uh, that's our goal because we understand that we're not going to address homelessness by ourselves. It's going to take all of us. Yeah. You know, uh, speaking of that, Redeemer uh, Church actually did a do not walk by campaign and ministry for their members to really pair up, go out into the neighborhood with a little card attached to an energy bar or something, and just hand it to a homeless person and say, hey, here here you are, God loves you, or whatever, mm-hmm. and there are some numbers here that you can call or places you can go to get a little more help. How can we help you today? Yeah. It was yeah, as simple as that. It's It really can be that simple. And again, as a person of faith myself, I would just encourage anyone to, to look at, you know, you know, the story of the Good Samaritan, the story of uh, the the guy who sees someone beat up and broken on the side of the road, um, and he doesn't walk by. He doesn't cross to the other side of the road and like the tourism websites recommend, uh, <laughs> right? But they actually, he, he looks, the, sees the person, he engages with the person, uh, and he provides tangible help uh, to that person. And I would say that that's, that's the example that we try to, you know, uh, highlight and celebrate at City Relief. But I also think all houses of worship, uh, one of the things I tell people a lot, I speak at a lot of churches, and one of the things I tell people is that not all Christians are called to serve the poor vocationally. This isn't like, like my job is unique. My calling is unique. But all Christians, all, A-L-L, all Christians are called to serve the poor intentionally. So that means you can't just sit on the sidelines. You have to, like Jesus leads us to the streets. And now it may not be you individually at that moment with that person, but there is someone out there that you are called uh, to help in some way. And this holiday season, I would just encourage all of my brothers and sisters in Christ specifically uh, to think about what it looks like for us to be uh, a part of that movement that Jesus started, that movement of compassion that I believe will change the world if we uh, start doing what we're supposed to. Uh, Josiah Haken, thank you so much. Uh, again, cityrelief.org. Uh, yep. Um, you can reach out and go to the website. Thank you so much for being on Lighthouse Faith thank Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful holiday season, and please help the homeless. Have a blessed day. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity Podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.